So uh, in the month of November, I was working on my sermon series for January and February, as well as kind of thinking through um, the season of Lent, kind of wrapped up like, okay, these are the the six weeks, here's what it is that we're going to look at and consider in this new year. And then God has a strange way of doing things. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but several weeks ago during the month of December, I was preaching on hope. And one of the scriptures that I used when I was talking about the sermon from Isaiah was Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And as I used it, I thought to myself, this is the verse I want to live into in 2024. Because it was just kind of, you know, one of those verses I was like, well, Paul's talking about hope and Paul's talking about the way in which hope comes to the Gentiles. And if you read through all of Romans chapter 15, which we're going to actually do next week, um, it's just such a great and encouraging word. So I want to share that with you because this actually plays into kind of what happened as I meandered through and thought about this sermon series that we're about to enter into. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And then there's this, so that you may overflow with hope as you, as the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to that. May the God of hope fill you, each one of you, not with just joy and peace, but with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I kept ruminating on that of saying, what exactly is that saying to me and how I live my life and how I conduct my ministry and um, my family and, and all those sorts of things? And then God began to sort of nudge me a little bit and say, I don't really like your sermon series for January and February. He's like, it's a good series, but it's not what you need to preach. And I'm like, no, Lord, you don't understand. I went away in November, so I didn't have to be thinking about a new sermon series in January and February, right around December 20th. Like, I don't like to plan sermon series that late in the game. And God's like, yeah, too bad. Um, I'm not quite sure that's exactly how that conversation went. But there was just a sense of God saying, when you start this new year, I want you to start with a different theme. And that theme has actually been working on in me and through me out of that Romans 15 verse of just saying, how is it that we express this overflowing hope? And isn't it in one of the ways in which we do that in relationship, how we engage with others, how we engage with the world, how we help people see the home that God has given to us? And so for the next six weeks, I want for us to think about what does it mean, what does it look like to be a welcoming community, to be a place that is known for love and care and concern for one another and for the world. Because we've come just come out of this wonderful celebration of Christmas, the good news that Christ has been born, 
But as Howard Thurman says, now the real work of Christmas begins. And so I want to share this quote. Howard Thurman, you may know, a great civil rights leader, a mentor, Dr. Martin Luther King, and wrote this many, many years ago. But it hit me as I read it, and I thought, this now is our task. So here's what he wrote. When the song of angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. And then he defines it. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. To bring peace among others and to make music in the heart. You see, the great celebration of Christmas is important for us, but as Thurman and so many others have said, now the real work begins. It is one thing to celebrate. It is another to live to live into that of which we have been celebrating and what we celebrated. So this morning, we're going to go back to the very beginning because it is the first Sunday of the new year. And I thought, well, where else better to start than the book of Genesis? And Genesis, you know, we, we can take Genesis 1 and 2 in many different ways. And some people want to talk about cosmology out of Genesis. And other people want to talk about a seven-day creation and whatever, whether that's literal or figural or however it is that we want to do that. But what I find in Genesis 1 and 2, and what I want to emphasize this morning, is that it helps us to see the love and care and concern that God has for you and me. This creation story of God creating a space and a place for us to call home. So we're in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first two verses, and then we're going to skip over to verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then we go through those days of creation, of God creating the light and the vault and the water under the sea and the land producing vegetation and the moon and the sun and the waters. And then we get to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
Then the heavens, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite authors, talks about two different homes, two different homes. The home we dream and the home we remember. So many of us remember that home, a childhood home, perhaps the home of our grandparents where we have these memories, these remembrances. But what Beekner also drives at in his book, The Longing for Home, is he's trying to get us to see that there is, some, there is a greater home. There is this home that we dream. This home where all is right. When all of the goodness and the wonder and the beauty of the world of God's creation is at peace and that we are at peace, it is the home that we dream, the home that we long for. And I think what Genesis 1 and Genesis do for us is they help us to see this home that God longs for us to have. That is God created and God made and God brought function to this world that was chaotic. There, there was darkness hovering. There was all this sort of stuff. And then God begins to work bringing order out of chaos, bringing the light, bringing the vegetation, pushing back the waters. And why is God doing all of this? It's for his creation. It's for his people. It's for those whom he is going to create, as the Bible tells us, in the very image of God. All of this work, all of this energy to create a home for us, for his people, a home for Adam and a home for Eve. And we're the only people, we're the only thing in in the whole narrative of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 that says you are made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. And we can take hours upon hours upon hours today to probably talk about what that exactly means to be made in the image of God. We're not going to do that because I'd like for you to show up next Sunday. So we're going to kind of just wrap that up. But just what I want you to hear is this incredible statement that all of this creating work that God was doing was to come to this point where he was going to create you and me and say, this is not just good, but very good. And God was going to place humanity, Adam and Eve, in a garden where all was right and where all was good. And this was different, like if you know the other ancient Near Eastern Eastern creation stories, this is quite different because the other gods and the stories that are told in the other, you know, the other narratives of, of different religions and different groups of people was that creation was, was the, the gods created the world so that the world might serve the gods, that the people might serve the gods, that they might take care of the gods. 
But God, our maker, God, our creator, does something completely different. He creates a world where we get to bear his image into that world. Where we get to serve one another. Where we get to bring home and hospitality and space and place to the people in our midst. We get to represent God to this created world. And that's a big responsibility. We're the only ones given that charge. So you may recall in Genesis 2, as God begins to unpack the, the, the work that man, humankind is to do, Genesis 2 chapter, chapter 2 verse 15, we read this as the job description of Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to do two things, to work it and to take care of it. To work the garden and to take care of the garden. Now that word there for work, it's interesting, both of these terms are used later on in Leviticus and Numbers to describe tasks given to the Levites and tasks given to the priests. You see, what God is saying and what we need to understand is that in his creative work and the way in which Genesis 2 describes this, we are given a priestly role. Now, I've tell you the season of Lent, we're going to be talking about these three themes, unless if God changes my mind again, which I'm hoping he doesn't, um, because I've now mailed off my, mail, emailed my entire preaching schedule through the end of May, so I'm hoping that God doesn't decide to change my mind in all this. But we're going to be talking about the role of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. The three offices of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills all three of those, but then also in our own lives, we get to live into what it means to be prophetic, to be priestly, to be kingly. That's for Lent, okay? So we're, not, we're coming back to that. But I want you to see that as God says to Adam, I want you to do two things. I want you to work the garden. That word for work can also mean serve. Can mean to toil. To worship. It's an interesting word because it takes on a number of different connotations. But it's this idea of saying, there, there, there's, there's work to be done to people. God's like, I'm creating you in my image. I'm giving you something to do. I want you to serve one another. But then there's also that word take care of, which has the connotation of guarding, of looking out for the wrongs. You know, Adam, and we've talked about this a lot. Adam, one of the things given to him was to say, keep the evil at bay. And guess who showed up? Y'all remember that, right? This little serpent. But part of our task, as we want to think about this in today's world, is saying, what is it that we are about in terms of serving others? And how are we doing 
at pushing back against the evil, the injustice, the oppression that we see? How are we helping to create a home for others? A place where they can thrive. A place where they can be at peace. How are we doing at that? And that's a challenging question because there is much need and concern in our world. So we have this priestly role. We have this idea that we are created in God's image. We have this notion that God has placed us in originally in a home and a place and a space that was all, where all was right and all was good. And then there's this weird thing in Genesis chapter two, where everything is done now. And we read that God rested. He's creating for these six days. And then this work of creation is done. And he decides to rest. And what does that mean? You're like, oh, dang it, it's the first of the year. Paul's back asking difficult questions. What ex- why, why does Scripture want us to know that God's resting? It's like God's taking a nap. It's like God just like set the world in motion. You know, some people think the gods did set the world in motion, then checked out. Why do we get this notion, this idea that God is resting? Well, a lot of theologians will remind us that when we look at the Garden of Eden, it is kind of a foreshadowing of the tabernacle and of the temple, of God's presence with his people. And this is a big theological thing that we're not going to dive into a lot today. But I want to kind of frame that of saying, we need to see that the Garden of Eden was a place where God said, I'm going to not just rest, but I'm going to reside in the garden. Because remember what happens in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve mess everything up? When they were out walking, right? And God showed up. Well, why, why does it describe that way? Well, it's described that way for us to understand that God said, I am taking up residence. My presence is going to dwell in your midst. Because in the, in, in, you know, in ancient re- religions, the, the temple was the place where the gods resided. It wasn't so much for the worship. It was for the worship, obviously, but it was where the gods resided. And so what is, what, what are we hearing in this? We're hearing that God is saying, I am going to dwell with my people. That's what home looks like. But I want us to think about in our own lives this notion of Sabbath, this notion of rest. 
Because as you may recall, in the book of Exodus, we are told to observe the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And then the reason is given for this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, I tend to think and have thought my whole life of Sabbath as like, you got to keep the rules, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. And obviously that's something we want to do. But why, why, why are we being told time and time again that God is resting? I think a part of it is God is saying, look, for the good of humanity, you, as in you and me, need to learn how to rest. Because ultimately what the garden story is telling us is that God is in charge, God set all this up for our sake. God set up the world for our sake. God set up this earth where we live for our sake. God sets up the garden where we live for our sake. And God says, I'm going to be in the midst. But you and I have a problem. And the problem is, we like to be in charge. We like to make the rules. We like to come up with the sermon plans. Whatever it is, however it is that you do that in your life, And we tend to push God to the side, and we tend to get busy. And what the Sabbath is trying to say to you and to me, and particularly as we start thinking about this new year, is sometimes we are just overly busy and overly committed, and there is no space for God in the narrative of our lives. I wish I had kept track of every person that told me in the winter of 2020 as we're in the midst of COVID and we're starting to come out of COVID, and when they said to me, I'm never going to get that busy again. Y'all aren't laughing at that for a reason, right? Because guess what we've done? We've gotten just as busy. We've gotten just as unfocused. We've lost sight of saying we need to be in relationship with God, and part of being in that relationship with God is resting in his goodness. Sabbath rest reminds us that God's in charge. That we can pull back for a little while and refocus our lives. Ultimately, God comes close to us again in the person of Jesus, in whose birth we just celebrated. Mark chapter 1, we wrap things up this morning. Verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Christ who was there in the very beginning, Christ who was with God as they began to form and to create this world, to speak hope into darkness and all these other sorts of things, Jesus now says, the kingdom of God is here. In your presence, 
in your midst. How will you respond to that? The goodness and the beauty and the glory and the wonder of God in the flesh, in our midst, saying, I'll be with you. I will be your eternal home. So for the next several weeks, you're going to kind of hear me asking the same question in different sorts of ways. And that is around this idea of how are we creating space and place in a home for others? How are we intentionally looking for those who may feel lost, who may feel as though they don't have a place, who may feel as though they have no home? Are our, 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 our eyes being truly open to the people in our midst? Are we inviting people to the table? Are we inviting others into relationship? Are we doing the work of Christmas? Pray with me, please. God, you give us these duties, so to speak. You, you create this world. You form this earth. You create us in your image. And God, sometimes we stray far from that created image that you have placed in us. We don't live graciously. We don't act out of love and kindness. We don't invite others to the table. And so we ask your forgiveness. For Lord, we have strayed, we have fallen. We have listened to the voice of others rather than to your counsel. And so Lord, as we make our way to this table, forgive us. Help us to see the ways in which we have moved far away from you. But Lord, open our eyes as well to those around us who need to know what it is to be loved, who need to be shown hope. Lord, would you fill us with all joy and peace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.